I'd invite you to take a copy of God's Word in hand. So take your Bibles out. If you're using one of the Bibles in the pew rack, we'll begin on page 39. There in your bulletin, it says Genesis 45 through 50. We're actually just going to focus on a passage from chapter 45 and then chapter 50. So we begin on page 39 and then we'll go to 43 here in a moment. In hindsight, this series on the story of Joseph's life, the life of Joseph, we could have called it what we just sang, All Must Be Well. That would have been a great title for this series. Uh, In hindsight, uh, we could have just entitled this Sunday morning sermon, Joseph's Bones, but we give our sermon titles at least with a couple days or weeks notice. And so it says, Jacob's End. So you can just take a pen and you can mark through Jacob's End. We're not really going to talk about Jacob's End. That would be chapter 46 through 49. I would encourage you to read that. I feel terrible about not covering it. Uh, If you feel ripped off, um, I would commend to you uh, Sinclair Ferguson's sermon on Genesis 49 called Praying Hands um, as an excellent summary of the end of Jacob's life and ministry, I hoped, or my plan was to talk about Jacob's strong finish. It's amazing. He meets with God one more time in Bethel to be assured that the God of the covenant was sending him to Egypt and God visits him in a dream. He arrives in Egypt as the covenant mediator of the living God and the rest of humanity. And he blesses Pharaoh the old, aged patriarch blesses Pharaoh. He doesn't bow before Pharaoh. And then he brings Joseph's two boys to him. He blesses them and adopts them as his own. And then he blesses and prophesies over the 12 tribes. And then he insists that he would be buried in the same tomb as Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac, and Rebekah, and his wife Leah back in Canaan's land. It's a good testimony. 25 chapters of the Bible are devoted to Jacob, and he finishes strong. There's a lot of good for us there. But we're not going to think about that anymore this morning. We're going to focus on one thing, Joseph's testimony. In chapter 45, we see Joseph's testimony at the age of 39. And then in chapter 50, we see his testimony at the age of 56, and then the age of 110. So before we read God's word together this morning, would you join me in asking the Lord for help? Our Heavenly Father, we come to you desperate for your word. We come to you grateful that you have given your word by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. You have preserved your word. And in your kindness to us, you have made sure that it is available to us in a tongue that we can hear and understand. This is your very word. So we ask that you would open our ears to hear it. That you would prepare our hearts to receive it. I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing to you. 
my rock, and my redeemer. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're picking up in the Joseph story in chapter 45. We'll start in verse 4. Recall that Judah has just offered his life for Benjamin's. Joseph hasn't seen his brothers 22 years. He is overwhelmed at the work of grace in their life, especially in the life of Judah. And he's brought to tears, and he kicks out all the Egyptians who are there. And at this point, he is speaking to his brothers in Hebrew, which must have been quite a shock to them. No one just picks up Hebrew overnight. Ask any seminary student here. It takes a long time, and after many years, it's very difficult. But now this man, this, Jew, this Egyptian governor, is crying and weeping for these men. They are in shock because he is claiming to be their brother. So hear the word of God from Genesis chapter 45. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine had been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler of all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall bear, shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. Now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. I'll turn over to page 43 if you're using a pew Bible. Let's look at Genesis 50. This is 17 years later. Verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. Now please forgive the transgression of the servants 
of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt. He and his father's house, Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Makar, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Amen. And that ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write the eternal truth on all our hearts. What kind of story is the story of Joseph? You know, there are different types of human interest stories that grip our imaginations. Who doesn't like a good underdog story? Someone who defies the odds and succeeds when no one else believes in them. This is not a controversial opinion. This is fact. The greatest basketball player of all time, Michael Jordan, wasn't always the greatest. He began as an underdog. His sophomore year, he tried out for Laney High School's varsity basketball team in Williamson, North Carolina. As a sophomore, he didn't make the team. The future six-time NBA champion, six-time finals MVP, five-time league MVP, did not make the varsity basketball team and was cut. The coaches didn't think he had what it takes. But through hard work and dedication, he made the team his junior year, went on to be a high school All-American, receive a scholarship to play for the University of North Carolina. He was drafted by the Chicago Bulls, and the rest is history. Doesn't that remind you maybe of a little bit of like Joseph's story? The guy's one in 12 brothers, terribly mistreated by his 10 older brothers, and against all the odds, through hard work and persistence, he overcomes the obstacles of slavery and prison to become prime minister of Egypt at the age of 39. You would ask Joseph, is your story an underdog story? He would tell you, that's not my story. He would reject the underdog narrative. Well, if you were to tell him that, well, maybe, Joseph, your story is a pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps kind of story. And say, look, look at all you accomplish so much without the help of others. 
Not only were you sold by your brothers, you were falsely accused by Potiphar's wife and prosecuted for a crime you didn't commit. And you were forgotten in prison by Pharaoh's cupbearer. And now, look at all that you have done. Look how far you have climbed. He would tell you, you were wrong. He would say, my story is not a story of me pulling myself up by my bootstraps. He may say, well, maybe you at least would admit, Joseph, that it's a story of rags to riches. You were stripped of all you had, sold as a slave, and after just a little bit of prosperity, again, stripped of all you have, losing everything and thrown into prison. And now, look at your position, look at your wealth, Joseph. Say, again, wrong. Not a rags-to-riches story. Okay, Joseph, what kind of story is your story? He'd say, it's a, it's a God story. But he'd say, it's really not about me. It's a story about the God I serve. It is God's story. It's a story of His saving providence. It's an epic narrative of how God is governing all things for the good of His people. It is a story of God directing all of history, including the evil acts of sinners to serve His purpose of glorifying Himself through the salvation of His people. Say that again. It is the story of the one true triune God directing every moment of history, including the evil acts and intentions of sinners, directing it all for the purpose of glorifying Himself through the salvation of His people. This is Joseph's testimony. It's right from the text in Genesis 45. Did you notice Joseph said it three times in 45? Verse 5, God sent me before you to preserve life. Verse 7, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth. And then, in further elaboration, but the same theme, verse 8, so it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Here is the theological heart of the story of Joseph's life. His story of suffering and perseverance is told in such a way that when you look at the whole, you would unmistakably recognize the hand of God guiding and directing Joseph's every step along the way. And at some point, he became convinced of this himself. But it's not just that God was directing his steps, it's that he was directing everyone's steps. Every step of the way. Look back at verse 5. Joseph says, And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, speaking to his brothers, because you sold me here. 
Now, this statement's important. In this statement, Joseph is not denying his brother's culpability. They are responsible. You sold me here. He is not denying that they sinned against him or that they were wrong. He is affirming their dignity as those made in the image of God, that they have exercised their own wills, their sinful will, in selling Joseph. They saw the opportunity. They plotted. They seized him. They sold him. Why? Because they despised their brother. They hated him. They were jealous of him. They wanted to get rid of him. They were acting according to their will. However, the ultimate reason why they sold him was because it was God's plan for them to sell Joseph into slavery. And if it was not God's will, their plot would not have succeeded. Their treatment of their brother was evil. And apart from pardon and forgiveness that can only come from God, they would be condemned for their actions forever. And yet, they could not have acted unless God ordained their actions. This is Joseph's testimony. They sinned against him. It was according to God's providence. Now, does that mean that God, too, sinned against Joseph in these events? God did not sin against Joseph by ordaining that his brothers would sin against him. How do we know that? Well, it's Joseph's testimony in chapter 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You meant evil, God meant it for good. And this right here makes Joseph's testimony one of the most important testimonies in all of Scripture. This right here makes it one of the most important Scripture passages in all of the Bible. You meant evil, God meant it for good. Same act, different motives. The act is evil, but God is not evil for ordaining the act. God ordains the evil acts of men and women for His good purpose. And he does so righteously without causing any tarnish to his holiness. And to be clear, the Bible here, we're not learning that God is such a wonderful, wise God that he can take an evil act and turn it around for good. Saying that God ordained good out of evil. Romans 8.28 doesn't say God is capable of making all things work for good. But no, it says we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. Or the NIV actually says it very truthfully. And we know in all things God works for the good of those who love him, 
who have been called according to his purpose. God doesn't just deal with the consequences of bad things and try to turn them around. He is working in all things. He may say, okay, getting nervous. I was concerned about showing up at a church that had reformed in the title this morning. I was concerned maybe that this would be pressed. Don't you mean to say, preacher, that God permits evil? Yes, but we must say more. As it says in Westminster Confession, chapter 5, paragraph 4, it's not a bare permission. It's not by bare permission that God ordained the first sin and every other sin that followed of both men and angels. But, out of his almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness, his providence extends to all things. In all things, he is ordering and governing, governing to his own holy ends. Ordering and governing all things to his own holy ends. So the confession says, and yet so, as the sinfulness thereof proceedeth only from the creature and not from God, who being most holy and righteous, neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin. God permits and governs evil for his holy purpose. And he does so righteously. Now you might say, I don't get that. I don't comprehend how God can ordain evil and, not, and yet not be the author of sin. And I just want to tell you this morning, welcome to the club. This is a high and deep and great mystery. I want us to see what Scripture teaches. As someone who has personally experienced tragic loss and decades of deep pain, Joseph's testimony doesn't answer all my questions, but there is comfort and healing that comes from his testimony. I want you to see that today, friends. Embracing the truth that God is light and in Him, in Him there is no darkness at all. And yet, He ordained and governs evil for His holy purpose. And embracing this truth, He'll keep you from ultimate despair. Embracing the truth that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all and yet he ordains and governs evil for his holy purpose will keep you from despair because it means that in your darkest hour God wasn't waiting to see what would happen in order that he could try to fix what happened. 
But in the darkest time of your life, he was at work. And so while it still remains a mystery, you can be certain that your holy God at all times is at work for your good. The balm for your soul. It may not answer all the questions in your head, but it frees you to confess whatever my God ordains is right. And you can join with the praise of Job and say, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So, this morning, have you been greatly sinned against? Those who did that to you, they are responsible. And as far as we can, by righteous means, we are to seek to execute justice. But what they have done to you could never be fully repaid in this life. There could be no full retribution or even vengeance. But knowing that it is under God's governance, intended for your good and his glory and that God is all light and no darkness it helps you helps you take the next step forward not recognizing all that God is doing through the sins that have been committed against you but it helps you take the next step forward are you sick oh we've seen a lot of sickness in our church over the last year, are you sick? Sickness is not a good thing in and of itself. It is a result of the fall, but God is not surprised by your sickness, and he, he is working in it. Are you suffering? Have you experienced loss? In your darkest hour, your God is at work. I don't think Joseph comprehensively even comprehended what he was saying. But he knew it to be true. How did he come to this conviction? The Lord gave him a dream. It was God's word to him that one day all his brothers would bow to him, that he would be in exalted status. It was God's promise to him. And so Joseph was able to look back on his life and see how God governed evil in order to fulfill his promise to Joseph. So that's how Joseph came to that conviction. However, it was more than God keeping a personal promise to Joseph. Joseph's eyes now are opened on how God was governing evil for the salvation of many. If Joseph is not sold into slavery, the promises of Abraham die of starvation during a famine in Canaan. Judah's descendants don't survive. There is no kingly tribe. There is no David. There is no lion of the tribe of Judah. We would not be meeting here today, and we would be abandoned to despair in this life and torment for eternity if Joseph wasn't sold into slavery. 
It reveals something of God's marvelous character and his divine wisdom governing evil acts for the salvation of many. And it's pointing us to what the apostles recognized happened with Christ. The day of Pentecost, Apostle Peter stands up. Acts 2.23 says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The men who killed Jesus were not intending to sacrifice him in order that his blood might be available for sinners for the forgiveness of sins. They thought they were executing him to punish him and to do away with him. And they didn't care if it was a just execution. They had determined it would be better for them if he was gone. So lawless men grabbed him, turned him over to godless men who crucified him. God, through it all, is executing his perfect plan save his people for all eternity. You might be here today, you might say that I'm not a Christian, and maybe one of your intellectual hang-ups is the problem of evil. It is, where did evil come from? Why does evil exist? If there is a good God who loves his creation and his creatures, why does evil exist? That may be your objection. And I don't mean to make it purely intellectual. Typically, don't we struggle with the problem of evil because we had suffered from evil and we've personally experienced it? It's one thing to look at the news, a genocide, a world away from us, but also each of us have been touched by the fall, both by the consequences of our actions and the actions against us. I recognize that struggling with the problem of evil is not merely philosophical for many of you. If that's your struggle, it's personal. I can't answer every objection that you would have. And I know that it's probably not enough for me just to tell you that it's a, it's a mystery. But what I can tell you is what, what Peter said. Look what, look what God did through evil. Look what God did through evil. He gave his son to ransom sinners. We don't have all the answers to this. But in the middle of human history, God the Father planted a cross and put His Son upon it and His Son freely went there in order that good might be worked from the works of evil. And so if you're not a Christian, this is the God that I invite you this morning to come and bow your knee to. Where else can you turn? What else 
can you do with your guilt? Where else can you bring your shame? What else and whom else could you look to for eternity? Hear Joseph's testimony. Hear the call of Christ to come and trust him. Now, it's important for us to note here that we do get to see what kind of man does this conviction produce. We see that in Joseph's life in 45 and chapter 50. The first thing I'd, I'd point out that a, a man who uh, has this conviction of God's complete and total sovereignty, his providence working his holy ends in all things, governing even evil for his purposes. This man who has this conviction about God, when Joseph, it makes him into a kind man. Makes him into a kind man. He is here ready to reconcile with his brothers. And then when he's speaking to them, what does he tell them? Genesis 45.5, do not be angry with yourselves. I was in Joseph's shoes. I would have been okay if my brothers would have been angry with themselves for just a little while. I would have been tempted to let them grovel. Give me all the apologies. And he, he kind of shuts them off. Don't be angry at yourselves. He's 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 free. I know many struggle with anger. Oftentimes, the root of our anger, it's not really frustration with others. It's frustration with God. And there's a place for that in lament and crying out to the Lord. But Joseph has done that, and he's come to this conviction, and now... His heart is free from anger and in kindness towards his brothers. He desires the same for them. You see his kindness expressed in verse 22 of 45. We didn't read it, but maybe you can look at that verse with me here. It's a, it's a little detail. To each of his brothers and all of them, he gave change of clothes. To each and all of them, he gave a change of clothes. Well, there's a lot of reasons why Joseph and his kindness to his brothers gave them clothes, but it's a, it's a beautiful closing of the, the loop here in the story. Of course, he, he's sending him back with gifts to Canaan. He wants his brothers to go back and convince his father that, hey, come to Egypt. Joseph is alive. Here is proof. Here is Benjamin. Here's the gifts he gave us. They're not going back to stay in Canaan for a long time. They don't need the clothes. He could just keep the clothes here. It's kind of like when you go visit family out of town and you got a long trip and they give your kids a bunch of presents and you got to bring them back. You're like, we could have just shipped them or we could have just done that like thing or maybe, no, it's sends them with clothes. It's a sign of his acceptance, love and kindness to them. Because in his story, they stripped him of the robe his father gave him. And then, when in Potiphar's house, 
Potiphar's wife falsely accuses him and strips him again of his outer garment. Then in prison, in chains, eventually he's exalted and he's given the garments of the prime minister of Egypt. Now, to these men who've done him so much harm, he's bestowing on them the gift of kindness and dignity. You're going to come and back to Egypt and you'll be dressed well. A man of kindness. He's also a man of action. He's not a frozen chosen. He's a man of action here in the narrative. Again, we didn't read it, but as he is recognizing God's plan unfolding before him, he isn't passive. He wasn't passive in prison in interpreting the dreams for the baker and the cupbearer. He wasn't passive in giving Pharaoh counsel. He hasn't been passive in orchestrating the, the famine relief efforts. But here in bringing his brothers, again, he's not passive. He starts negotiating, in a sense, with Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says, I hear your family's coming. And he says, yes, they're coming. And he says, Pharaoh says, I'll give you the best of the land. And he says, give us Goshen. Give us that fine land that hasn't been touched. And then he says to his brothers, when you meet Pharaoh, be sure to tell Pharaoh, we are shepherds. Because the type of shepherds that we are, the Egyptians find abominable. They don't want you around. And in Joseph's directing and guiding and acting here, God was again doing something marvelous in his providence. These two things, that they would settle in the land of Goshen and that they would tell everyone, we are shepherds. It kept the Israelites distinct. They're very frail as a people. Twelve brothers, it's only 70 of them, it tells us, that have come down to Egypt. But these measures... What keeps them unique and separated from the Egyptians, they won't assimilate into the culture around them. They will remember the covenant God that Jacob blessed them in the name of. And Goshen, we're not sure exactly where it is, but we have good reasons to believe that it's on the outskirts of Egypt a place that would be the perfect location for an overnight escape from the land. God was doing so much. And as Joseph sees the God who is always at work in all things, he is active. And then we see this conviction produces a man of mature faith. We say a man of mature faith who God has prepared for eternity. It closes here, the book of Genesis, with instructions about his bones. So back in chapter 50, verse 24 and 25, Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land 
the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then he made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. He has a view beyond his life. He sees God at work fulfilling the promises to his great-great-grandfather Abraham. And he knows now that not even evil can stop God fulfilling his promises, but in fact, God is governing evil, evil towards the fulfillment of his promises. And so he starts thinking towards the end. This is what the writer of Hebrews tells us. This is what's exemplary about Joseph's faith. Hebrews 11.22, we'll see it here in a couple months on Sunday morning. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. This great servant of the Lord, who persevered through so much, who clung to the God of his father through thick and thin. This is what the writer of Hebrews highlights as the pinnacle, the culmination, the maturity of his faith. He was prepared for eternity. He made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. See in Hebrews 11.16 of Abraham's descendants, the patriarchs and those of faith, those who would be of the faith of Abraham, it says this, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared for them a city. This is what's happening in Joseph saying, don't forget my bones. God told Abraham in Genesis 17 that your descendants will be in a foreign land for several hundred years, but not forever. And Joseph believes that. Joseph believes that, but he's caught something more than that. He's caught something that the promise of the land is a promise of a country to come. So here is, after many trials and temptations and suffering, mature faith, take my bones. It's something, isn't it? The book of Genesis, the way that it ends, it ends with death. But not the way that death is introduced in the book. And we're supposed to note that. When death is introduced in the book of Genesis because of Adam and Eve's disobedience, it is a terrible pronouncement and condemnation, but in that there was the promise that the seed of the woman would eventually crush the head of the serpent, implying that one day death will be defeated. So while death concludes the book, it's not a victorious death that closes the book of Genesis. Ed Clowney says it's well. I'll read it. This is a quote at length. 
The book of Genesis begins with God's creation of light and life. It ends with the embalming of a mummy in Egypt. Yet Genesis was not written as a death knell tolling the doom of human sin. It was written to trace the hope of God's deliverance, His promise of salvation. The mummy was the body of Joseph, the son of Israel who became a prince in Egypt. His body was preserved by the arts of Egypt, but not to be in tune with the pharaohs. Rather, Joseph's last charge to his brothers was that his body be carried with them. And when God would lead the Israelites out of Egypt and back to the land of promise, Joseph shared the hope of Israel, his father. God would yet do all that he promised to Abraham. God would yet do all that he promised to Abraham. And we have that promise in HD. This side of Christ's death and resurrection, you and I have a clearer picture of that promise than Joseph did. So as we sang earlier, we expect a bright tomorrow. We actually mean it. Faith can sing through days of sorrow. We mean it. On our Father's love relying, Jesus, every need supplying, yes, in living and in dying. We sing all must be well, and we mean it. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Joseph is mentioned in the book of Hebrews. He's cited in the Psalms. He's, his story is also referenced in Acts chapter 7 in Stephen's great sermon speech. But also, we find the fulfillment of his words and his a promise that he made, his brothers made to him in Joshua 24, verse 32. And there, after entering the promised land, well over 400 years since the time of Joseph, after the tribes have received their inheritance and they are settling in, it says, as for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem in the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamar, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. And it became an inheritance to the descendants of Joseph. His bones were brought and buried in Shechem. But Joseph knew that wasn't his final home. It's his almost home. Somewhere in this world today, there's evidence and the remains, whether as microscopic as they might be, of Joseph's bones buried somewhere in Canaan's land. They're not going to stay there. Because when that heavenly country comes down and all things are made new and the righteous are resurrected and they meet the Lord, there, we'll have new bones, glorified body. And so, 
he and all who trust in Jesus will be with Jesus forever. Let us pray. Lord, we confess that oftentimes knowing great truths we place our hope in lesser things and things that will not sustain us, keep us. And we profess that because Christ is risen and Christ is coming again, we do have a sure and certain hope for tomorrow, for all eternity. Until that day, and until we see our Savior's face or see Him coming on the clouds, may we walk with You with confidence, knowing that You are at work all things for our salvation, your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.